Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is going to be a really interesting, useful, fun conversation with Sean McNamara, because we're going to be looking at taking our sovereignty back. And he started on this journey a long time ago um, as a result of something that many of us been, have been through, and that is giving our power away to gurus and religious figures in our lives. And Sean realized at that time, it was time to take back his own abilities and his own power. And he became a, a psychic remote viewer. Uh, he's, he can do telekinesis. He started really developing the power of his own being and his own mind. And now he teaches that in remote viewing in particular today. And that's something I think it's a practical skill all of us need to learn. So let's go to Sean and get into this conversation. Sean, welcome. It's so good to have you with us. Thanks, Regina. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. First of all, I just teased it a minute ago. I want to go back into your own personal story because I think it's very important for us. Many people watching this have been through the, the guru path and, and so forth. And sometimes it's a Rinpoche, it's whomever. And I would like to start with you and your study of Buddhism and what was happening in your life that made you make this profound change into claiming your own sovereignty and mind. Well, I started practicing Buddhism in my 20s, and it was the result of basically working with my own fear of death that I, that I acquired when I was about seven or eight years old. I had an appendectomy. It was an emergency appendectomy, and I was rushed to the hospital, and I was in a lot of pain for a couple of days before they figured out what it was. Then they rushed me to the hospital. And after the surgery, I realized that pain is real. It was my first real experience of very bad pain. And I started thinking about my own mortality at that point. Apparently my appendix ruptured as they were pulling it out. And they told me if it ruptured while it was in me, chances were good that I either would have gotten very, very sick or died. So that was presented to me that this is the nature of life, that we can get sick and die. And I was reminded as I grew up in childhood and young adulthood um, of my own mortality. So I had a couple of growths, lumps taken out of my chest when I was in my teens. And each time, you know, there's that period of the biopsy and waiting to find out if it's cancer or not. Mm -hmm. I had heart surgery at a certain point. And by then I'd already been practicing Buddhism for a little bit. And there were other smaller events that reminded me, you could die now. <laughs> and if you're lucky, it won't happen, but it'll, it'll happen eventually. So I was haunted by my own mortality. I was raised as a Catholic. I come from a Catholic family, but something in me is pretty stubborn. <laughs> um, and I knew that I just didn't want to be told what to believe about what happens when we die. I just wasn't satisfied by that. I wanted to find out for myself. I wanted to have a direct experience of some type that would show me that would show me that some part of me will continue when my body passes on. And I started to wonder if maybe meditation could be a path for me to experience that quality, whatever it is, spirit, soul, consciousness, something that won't fall apart when my body dies. So I stopped going to church and I found a local Buddhist center to go to. And it's, it's not there anymore, but it's in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And that model follows the ancient Indian model of guru disciple. Let me ask you a quick question here. What appealed to that over priest 
congregation model because mm-hmm. you already had kind of a guru system in Not the priesthood. Because <laughs> <laughs> if I can't talk to talk to God, <laughs> I need this intermediary to grant me access, right, through a priest. Frankly, looking back now as a grown-up adult, I have to admit it's probably part of it was the um, esoteric quality to it. So a lot of the practices in the Tibetan tradition are regarded as secret. (laughs) And so you have to climb the ladder to access those secret teachings. And I think that happens in many different aspects of life. If you want to sell a product, put the word secret on it. Yeah. Fact, the book, The Secret. <laughs> right. Not seller, right? But yeah. secret to this, the secret to that. And in spirituality and religion, that's used there too, this s- secret practices. And you have to give more to get that. So that was one quality. Part of it was just basically the, the mystery of it all, the pageantry. Um, and I've lived overseas, I was raised overseas. So it's not like I was ignorant of other religions and traditions and and the beauty of the world outside the United States. Um, So I wasn't blind to it, but it's very attractive. It's um, something new, something special, something different. Um, All the color, all the the chanting, the special words using a foreign language and all the practices. uh, It was exotic. It it was something exotic and mysterious. And we uh, we all are enchanted by that. We're all drawn to that. And we it's the halo effect. If something seems mysterious and exotic, we attribute other important qualities to it, which may not actually be there, but we believe they are because it's so exotic. So that was a big part of the draw. The other part of it too was the notion of enlightenment in Buddhism. This idea that if you meditate enough, if you develop yourself enough, you will find an end to suffering. Of course, it doesn't necessarily mean having an afterlife. In fact, the Buddhist philosophy on the afterlife is different from other religions. So in Catholicism, we all want to go to heaven. But in Buddhism, you just want to stop the cycle of the coming and being reborn and re-experiencing suffering. That's that's one way to interpret the teachings and other others. So for me, I wanted to end my fear, though. That's what I wanted to end, my fear of death. And I wanted to acquire a deeper understanding of reality. And I thought, well, enlightenment sounds nice, but I really just want to experience something. And if I could learn some of these exotic meditation practices, maybe they'll give me special access to reality or to mm-hmm. my life or to the afterlife. Who knows? And so that was the draw. And I started practicing a lot and But along the way, because of the dogmatic quality of any religion, really a bit including Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, over the years, I started forgetting my primary aim of being a spiritual person. I forgot that my goal was to find my answers about what happens when we die. And instead, I began focusing on being a good Buddhist, right? Following the rules, learning as much as I could, memorizing different books, doing all the practices. And in this organization that was the container for this religion, you know, it was sort of almost like a multi-level marketing thing where if you want the next advanced practice, 
have to spend a few thousand dollars, go on a really long retreat, and then you'll receive a blessing and the permission to get that next practice. And when you do it long enough, you can pay another $5,000 and go to another retreat, get the next thing. And the thing is, after a few years of this, I looked around the room and realized that nobody was getting enlightened. And I know that's going to sound judgmental. Someone's going to say, Sean, you're judging people. You have no idea. Maybe there were people in that room getting enlightened. But I don't know. I think I'm... I think it's safe to say no one was really getting what they thought they would get by spending all that money and doing all that work. And the so what, was, what catapulted you into this other direction from that point? There are a lot of ways you could have gone. You could have said, ah, forget about it, but you chose to double down. Yeah, I just, I, I believed it, you know, and every time I climbed to another level, it's as if I was getting closer to the guru or the teacher. Right. And there is, there's the thing with Tibetan Buddhism or any, I think a lot of spiritual traditions where there's a guru teacher relationship, there's the idea that the guru is the one that grants you access to enlightenment or to knowledge or wisdom, or whatever it is. And if you are in the guru's good graces or you maintain a good bond, then everything's going to happen great. If you're not, or if you happen to believe that your guru is just an ordinary human then your journey is over. Well, the problem was at one point I attended a retreat and I was there with a girlfriend and he ended up inviting her to spend the night with him. <laughs> you mean like spend the night with him mm -hmm. in the way we would understand that as adults. Yeah. And the problem was we not, heard cool. <laughs> not cool. We'd heard rumors that he had done this with other students, but we weren't willing to actually see him with an honest eye. It's like, oh no, he's the guru. He can do no wrong. Besides, I spent all this money to get here. But then it finally happened to me and to her. She was fine with it because she thought this would grant her even closer access to the guru and maybe give her more blessings and enrich her journey. Well, over the years, it came out that he's been doing this for years with many different oh. people. There's nothing special about it. He's just a guy on a power he's trip. Just a guy, yeah. So, I don't want to make another long story, but yeah. basically I left, I found another teacher in a similar tradition, but there instead of sexual impropriety, it was a power issue. There was, it was a psychological control thing. So there was mental abuse happening in that situation. And I was so frustrated and I realized that I hadn't gotten anywhere. And I remembered that I had forgotten my original intention for being a spiritual explorer. Okay, so <laughs> obviously other things had to have entered your awareness during that period of time to make you take this path and become a really extraordinary remote viewer. Well, I remembered something that I had found out about when I was a teenager. Actually, I was younger than that. But I, when I was a kid, I watched that TV, made-for-TV movie, Out on a Limb with Shirley MacLaine. Yes, Shirley MacLaine, yeah. And I remember the scene where she had an out-of-body experience. Yes. I remember that, and I thought... If I could have an out-of-body experience, that would give me the evidence I need that some part of me will continue after I die. And I tried when I was a kid, but I only had one book and it wasn't all that helpful. But now as an adult, many more great books have been written on how to do it. And the point I want to make here is no retreats necessary, no guru's blessing, no special permission. You just read the books, do the practices at home in bed or in your living room. And I started training myself. And at the time, I was still connected to that second teacher. 
But after several months of really training intensively, getting out of bed every night in the middle of the night to go train in the living room while my wife slept in bed, uh, I eventually had my first out-of-body experience. And two things happened. One, my fear of death vanished instantly. And two, I got up the courage to face my teacher and say, I'm finished with you. <laughs> I'm finished with this path. It, it's not, I'm not getting what I need, so goodbye. So give me that courage. In a way, I got my sovereignty back. And that was just, I would, if I described the out-of-body experience as a psychic experience, that was the first one that I started developing for myself. And eventually, I started learning remote viewing, too, along with telekinesis and, and other things. And so the out-of-body experience was a gateway into exploring reality. And I could do it on my own terms. And I no longer had to give my power away to another human being for as long as I lived. So it's fully empowering. I totally appreciate it. I'm on the same page as you. I love it. So you obviously uh, trained. You were a disciplined person. You'd already shown that to yourself. But it appears, were you, would you say you had any particular ease of ability um, in this area? Because I, I, we have a little video of you working with your mind and folding some aluminum foil with the mind telekinesis uh, and such. Do you feel you had any kind of special abilities you brought to the table or were they developed just as any ordinary person would develop them? Yeah, I'm like the, the difficult kid in class who's having a hard time learning everything. Nothing came naturally. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I should say that I probably, the one advantage I had was all the years of meditation I'd right. done beforehand, training my mind. And it's not that my mind was particularly special. It's just that I was used to working hard at whatever I was doing with my mind. So I just put a lot of effort into it. I'm a pretty, not a slow learner, but nothing came quickly in terms of psychic abilities, just constant practice and desire, learning everything I could about each ability, reading all the books I could get, get my hands on. And it's actually hard to find really good books on these topics. A lot of them talk about them, or they'll talk about uh, scientific studies about them, and you'll get statistics. But I was looking for instructions, and I had to develop my own instructions for a lot of these. Mm -hmm. But luckily, enough instructions were already out there, like with the out-of-body experience, my favorite author there is William Buhlman, a wonderful out-of-body teacher, and his books are excellent. And that's what I relied on the most. But of course, there are a thousand different techniques to use. And so um, it's not really so much about finding the one perfect technique. It's finding about the, the best technique that worked for me and trying for different you. things and experimenting. Right. And this is encouraging for people to hear because so many of the people that I interview um, and others interview have extraordinary abilities from the time they're born or out for, as a child, and they have to kind of cover it, cover them up. And then later they reawaken and they're all there in living color. But you're talking about something that just takes practice and work and you would put the hours in meaning, which Russell Targ used to talk about this when I interviewed him years and years ago, that you can train people to do this. This is not an unnatural human skill. It's it's within all of our capability if we choose it. I think right. that's important to know. It's absolutely true. So anyone watching this who's wondered if they could ever do these things, but they don't feel particularly special, it's not about that. It's not about the family you're born from. It's not about 
the falling star hitting you on your birthday. It's just about finding some techniques and really experimenting and giving it your full attention, which is tough these days because so many people spend their extra time on the internet or watching TV or whatever. Think about the ancient days when the spiritual people, the ascetics, the monks and nuns and the yogis and yoginis, they weren't watching TV. <laughs> and they had caves and they had lovely places that were quiet with no interference and all the time in the world, the opposite of what we're doing with all these frequencies and Wi-Fi, everything running through us and every distraction in the world. You're right. It makes it a difficult task today, but can still be done. So you started your out-of-body experiences then you started working with remote viewing. Give us a couple little tastes of what you initially were able to do with remote viewing that um, helped you to form a deeper commitment to this path. Sure. Well, the my first taste of remote viewing with a group of people happened in the midst of a year-long mediumship training course I was taking. I was a student here in Denver uh, with a woman named Jude Starks, who's an excellent mediumship teacher. And some of the exercises she had us do had to do with developing our clairvoyance. And she introduced us to the protocol of remote viewing. I also did one of the online courses by David Morehouse, who was part of the military program. And I can't remember now which came first, but the taste of it, where my teacher, where Jude Starks would walk in with an envelope and a picture inside the envelope and have us send our intention or set our intention to perceive what was inside. And we all put our heads down and started making drawings on paper. And then at the end, we, she pulls the picture out and all our, all our jaws hit the floor. And that was really a way at the time of developing confidence to know that when we were receiving messages from non-physical beings, from loved ones who passed over, that there is a transfer of information in a non-physical manner. And so in that, in that instance, remote viewing was just a way of showing that, that we can send and receive information in a non-physical way. Um, and of course with mediumship, it, the bond is stronger because there, there are two consciousnesses communicating to each other versus- I was going to just, ask you about that. If you're trying to see a picture in an envelope, it's just a dead piece of paper with some ink on it. So that can be more difficult. But it's different now if you're trying to remote, remote view, for instance, um, an outbounder experiment where you're trying to see what somebody is doing. And if it's someone you're connected to, then there's even more possibility because of the connection to receive more information. And this happens spontaneously between people all the time. It's closely related to telepathy when, when you are about to text someone you love and they text you at the same time or phone calls or you're thinking suddenly about your child in college on the East Coast and think that they need help and you call them and they were actually just in a car accident or something. Right. And so, always there. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about that for a moment because I've noticed through this through the years, there are certain different kind of traits of mind that people natively possess. And for example, when it comes to the area you're talking about, there are some people who are just kind of natural senders. They have a powerful wattage when it comes to putting out an image, a desire, an idea or something. There are others who are more powerful receivers. And then of course you have everything in between. So did you notice this in yourself that one was a little 
easier for you, not even easier, but you were maybe a little stronger in one area in the, than the other. And that's going to lead up to another question. Sure. I'd say for me, I'm probably a better receiver because I'm sort of a normally <laughs> a pretty mild-mannered person. So I'm pretty relaxed and actually like to linger in bed a lot. And so receiving in those liminal states when you're fully relaxed, you're close to sleep, or you're an experienced meditator, then you're able to receive because it's almost like the information is ripples on a lake at night and you can see them because the mind is so relaxed and still. But if you're a sender, that means you're more of, you're more alert. And, and there is some data that I found in books that I read and research that I did that to send, it's better to be in an antagonized state. And think of a child and parent and the parent perceives, maybe the parent is washing dishes and they're very relaxed. So they're good receivers. At the same time, their child is in a car accident. They're in shock and they're able to send a powerful signal across space time because of that intensity in their mind, because of the shock. In 2019 with my friends, I know we might talk about this more later, but we, we used remote viewing to predict the pick three lottery in Colorado. And we won it twice that way. I think it was the first time we did it. What I had them do is once they knew their feedback, the image that they were trying to see psychically, once they had it, after we had the prediction, I had them dunk their arms in a bucket of cold ice water. I read that and I thought, explain this to us and why you did this. Yeah, that was, that was an experiment to heighten their consciousness, to heighten their awareness because of the psychological pain mm-hmm. dunking their arm in the bucket of ice water would cause. So they're in this heightened state and they're looking at their feedback image and they're intending to send that picture to themselves back in time a couple hours back when they were first trying to perceive it psychically. So it's like they're doing telepathy with themselves across the past and the future. Yeah. And I find that interesting and trippy. And actually uh, back in 86, when I first interviewed Russell Targ, that was the thing that intrigued me most about that famous military remote viewing experience they had with um, Russia was that they were remote viewing into the future. Mm-hmm. The images hadn't been selected yet. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's quieter. It's easier to perceive when you go out of the now into the future. Mm-hmm. And now that brings up a, a whole other conversation, but let's talk about how you used it and perceived that. Well, so like on a daily basis, yeah. you can mm-hmm. so this is something I think about all the time. Um, and I try and encourage people to use this technique because it's not exactly remote viewing, but it's based on that principle that we can connect with ourselves across time. If Have you ever met someone who just seems lucky all the time? They always know the right decision to make. They know when to turn right, when to turn left, when to say yes and no, who to date and who not to go on a date with. And some people are completely the opposite. They're totally unlucky. They seem yeah. to learn by making. I know more decisions. people in the unlucky category, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm one of those people and I'm trying to work on it. And my hypothesis is taking the example of the ice bucket. Um, 
Well, I'll say I also have my friends do something else when they when they're doing the feedback. If it's not a bucket of ice water, sometimes I'll have them clap their hands or slap their forearms or do something to get excited or just cheer and scream and celebrate, like really celebrate when they realize they got the target right. So they're boosting their wattage. They're boosting their wattage and sending the information at that moment to themselves in the past. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be one of those really naturally lucky people and successful in life, what you could do is make this a daily practice. And all you have to do is every time you realized you made the right decision about anything, maybe taking a different route to work because there, there happened to be traffic or an accident on the way, or you accepted a job offer and it turned out to be the right decision or you weren't sure about going on a date with someone and it turned out to be a wonderful connection that you made. After these types of events, find a private little corner and cheer and scream and celebrate and say, yes, 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 this was the right decision. And send that back to yourself when you weren't quite sure what to do. Because if we rewind the tape and go back to me like, should I do this? At that moment, something made you go, yes. And maybe that something was your signal from the future coming back across time saying this is the right thing to do. Well, you're saying certainly it would raise the odds of that because you're developing a sense of confidence in self and it's boosted with this wattage. You're at, you're feeding wattage to it so it can really find its way back and kind of uh, hit you to validate that you've done the right thing, that you made a good decision so that then you can start trusting yourself more as these events in the future roll out, right? Is that kind of... Absolutely. Okay. It goes back to that um, self-authority, self-authority, self-empowerment in a way. You don't have to rely on anyone else. You're learning how to trust yourself, trust your instincts and make independent decisions that way. Instead of wondering, what does everybody else think? What's everyone else's opinion here? You don't have to rely on that so much, which can be difficult for some people because that means you may not fit in anymore when you start going your own way. And that's that's the psychological difficulty that anyone needs to overcome, especially when they're making decisions based on their gut or their intuition. Okay, there. let's talk about another nuance in this. I want to get to some of the some of the situations or cases um, that you've been involved with where you remote viewed and thought, you know, it were maybe it was even a bit of a challenge, but you, you got it, or maybe a group of you really got it. Uh, uh, we already talked a little bit about the lottery. That's a totally joyful one. Some aren't quite as joyful. I'll bring that up in a moment. But what happens when you're viewing and you have a lot of emotions going on because there's an attachment to the outcome of whatever it may be, because I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up. Sure. Well, it's, it's difficult because the thing with remote viewing, when you do it strictly, somebody gives you the coordinate, which represents a target you're trying to perceive. That means you don't know what the target actually is. And there, that, that helps you stay new, emotionally neutral. You have no idea. But if you create your own target, if you say, I want to remove you what my ex-boyfriend is doing right now. And you exactly. Already, you already suspect. That's when, invasive. And I, and I wanted to get to that. You brought it up already, but go ahead. Yeah. You, you know, you think you know what someone's already doing, but now you're going to say, I'm going to remove you what they're doing to verify my belief. Well, that's so difficult because your emotions 
are flooding your brain and your consciousness. You already have your bias. You have your preferences. You either want to bless the person or damn them or curse them, you know? And yeah, because so there's fear. There's fear, fear and hope and all that comes into yeah. play. And you're very likely to see what you want to see instead of what is actually happening. So when you say you're going to remove you a situation, it's trust. It's more trustworthy when you have no idea what the target is. So it's hard to say, well, I want to just take a peek on someone I I'm concerned about or someone who's I'm interested in or something like that, or it's a political situation or what's, the president saying, or what's my supervisor? Is he going to give me a raise next week? Or am I going to get fired next Tuesday? These kinds well, of things. All emotional charges. All emotional charges. So whether it's love or money or job or life, whatever it is, if you know what the target is ahead of time, it's super difficult. It's and yet at the same time, most people want to view, learn how to view for, for exactly that reason to be able to kind of suss out their own lives, make better decisions. And we'll get to that, uh, the notion of what happens when you're looking at past, present, and future, because that gets a little tricky and complicated too. I hope you're enjoying this video, because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. I was going to say, in one experience I had, a dear friend of mine and the people in town, I lived in Sedona at the time, a lot of intuitives there. And uh, his, uh, he, his nephew had gone missing. And so he was normally very, very good viewer himself, but because of his emotions, he couldn't view. I was very close to him. So I was a little rattled and I did a view, but it was distorted. Another friend, one degree of separation out who wasn't attached to him or the son but knew him was it was the one who did the most accurate viewing. I just got this gray, hellish kind of place. He was hanging out and white, very, very pale and white. And I thought maybe he was in a in a um, what do you call it when people are on drugs and they're in a an environment where they all live together, kind of like a flop house for druggies. That's sure. where I thought that's where I thought he was. It turned out I was looking into he was dead. I was looking into that dimension and maybe what happened just prior to that. Mm -hmm. And my friend couldn't see anything at all. So that's an example where it's not us. We are looking for someone else, but there's enough emotion. You get distortion in it. Yeah, there is. You actually just presented a solution in a way. So let's say I want, I actually did this with my, my Denver group of friends who I do experiments with. I did this with them last year because I write books from time to time. And I wanted to know, I had two book ideas in mind and I wanted to know which one would be more successful if I wrote it. So I'm trying to decide psychically, which, which way should I go? I couldn't rem remote view that myself because I was too personally tied up into it. So I asked them if they would help me and they agreed. And what I did is I wrote down the question please describe the theme of the book that would be most successful in 2021 or 2022. 
and I folded it or put it in an envelope. And I said, this is the answer to this question is your target. And so they had no idea that it was about me. They had no idea that it was about a book, a book idea or about success or anything like that. They just said, they just knew that Sean needs help answering the question in this envelope. And then they sat down and several of them started describing one of the books that I was considering. And I said, that's the one to do. Of course, because I didn't do both, I yeah. can't say for sure. Yeah. Well, no. That's what the other one would have been. Sure. It gave me a sense of confidence. And it came from people who had no idea what the target was. No attachment, no motion. No motion. So that's a solution. Anyone out there, if you want to use remote viewing to find answers to your questions, you could do that. If you have two or three friends who you practice remote viewing with, and it's easy to learn, there's so many ways to learn and practice it together as a group. You could do it where one person presents a question to the others and they have no idea what the question is. You could also, with your friends, have five questions that over the next couple of years you would love to have answered, and all the friends have their questions. You throw them in a basket, and you get together once a month and pull out one of the envelopes and say, we're all going to view the answer to the question in this envelope. And you That's don't, a wonderful you know, idea. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun, and, you know, you want to be careful how much you take the results to heart. Even the professional remote viewers, they they know that remote viewing should be an addendum to actual intelligence gained some other way. You don't take full on. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. People drop down that rabbit hole. <clears throat> I know a lot of people who do and have, and, and even kind of become junkies for mm -hmm. psychic readings and do not develop that skill internally and remain in this anxious kind of, I would say perpetually anxious state of mind because they're not, they don't allow themselves to trust in themselves because they haven't developed that for themselves. That's really why I wanted to do this with you. I'm really big with the world having uh, truth as simply anyone's preference or option in a given moment, we're going to have to have much more solid ways of uh, kind of, I think, tapping into essential truths now. And that we have to do ourselves. No one can do that for us. I, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well, no, I agree completely. Uh, we need to learn to rely on ourselves. We need to be very careful considering any outside source of information, including what we see on social media. Yes. Especially when you're seeing something that you happen to agree with. Because you're going to believe it. And what if it's not true and you have no way of verifying that? So that personal bias has to be analyzed, whether it's social media or your own psychic perceptions. Bias gets us into trouble with psychic stuff, too. So we're constantly thrown back on being very grounded and being very careful with how we consider any situation, consider our options. Consider the practicalities, consider the people involved. So we have to be very careful. And there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. And psychic abilities, I don't believe, are a shortcut. They show us a deeper aspect of ourselves. But I believe I was born in a human body in this lifetime to learn human lessons. And something I like to tell people when I talk about my out-of-body experiences is all those months when I was trying to have my first one, 
I'd spend half a night in another room instead of in bed with my wife. And after I'd had enough out-of-body experiences, I realized, okay, some part of me is going to continue after I die. But right now, I have this many years left with my wife. So why am I focusing on something I'll experience when I'm dead? Beautiful. I could just be with her because that's what this life is about. So the more, the older I get, I have to say, the more the psychic experiences I have are falling into the background and I'm heading more into my human life to focus on learning the human lessons. In a way, in a way, the stuff is like looking at the answers at the back of the book. Yeah. But being a human being is going to class every day and learning the lessons and taking the tests and learning from our mistakes. So I don't want to skip to the back of the book anymore. You know, I just want to be a human. <laughs> and well, it's so many, I agree with you. I think so many people feel that life on, on earth is in their own private worlds, turning into some kind of private hell that they want to be able to look to the back of the book and see what can I do? How can I get out of this? So many people trying to jump out of the loop of being human with the assumption there's something better. Okay. <laughs> That's a big assumption, eh? And uh, also, like you say, bypassing the incredible opportunities for development of so many things on this earth with, I mean, I'm a big fan of earth. Um, I'm a big fan of the incredible opportunities, um, the splendor of nature, etc. There's so much to play with here. So I really hear what you're saying. At the same time, being able to tap into these fields of awareness, consciousness, and, and potential is our birthright. And it would make our life our lives and our earth lessons work so much more efficiently. We don't have to bang our head against the wall and maybe incarnate 10 times to learn the same lesson. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, our consciousness and what we perceive with it or what we send out from it has so much potential for things like healing. Yes. Realizing the equality of living beings. We might, you know, for example, racism. Well, underneath our skin is pure consciousness, no matter what part of the world you're born in. And so if that enriches your sense of equality and an appreciation for people who look differently than you do or than I do, then that is a valuable gift of exploring consciousness, seeing that on some level, we're all sacred creatures and we all deserve respect and love instead of acting so crazy and violently towards each other the way we seem to do once in a while. I think that that's what's driving people to want to get out of the earth loop of the incarnation loops, honestly, Um, get off the wheel and try something else. But I think it's better to personally, my own view is I think it's better to really learn how to learn what you can within it and appreciate the opportunity and beauty in it. Even in some of the harsh stuff, it's showing us something, showing us something about ourselves or it's showing us something collectively about ourselves for the time period we're in that we're all here to either experience or, or heal, you know, together. So I think we're very much on the same page on that. I'd like to talk a little bit about remote viewing into the future, because that's what a lot of people want to do. They want to look into the future 
see what they're supposed to do. Not a good question. What do you want to do? Uh, but see what's supposed to happen next, what's going to happen next so that they can kind of back engineer the choices they're making now. I'd like to talk about that for a moment and some of the pitfalls of viewing into the future. Uh, well, it's there are difficulties there too, because some people seem to be successful in certain categories. And for some people it's hit or miss. For example, I'm I'm part of a wonderful group of remote viewers called the Applied Precognition Project. And we use associative remote viewing for predicting like sports outcomes or which you can gamble with just for fun, right? Not a lot of money, but just try and predicting a horse race or something like that. And sometimes we all seem to draw similar transcripts predicting a very specific outcome, like this person's going to win or this team, this football team is going to win. And we're so sure about it. And it goes the other way. So that's one difficulty that no matter how good your perception seems to be, the future is not absolutely fixed. It can change for any number of reasons. Absolutely. At the, last moment. the other difficulty is depending on what you're asking about the future, you may not be able to provide yourself with feedback. Feedback is a picture or a drawing or evidence of how accurate you were when you were receiving your psychic impressions. So let's say, you want to perceive the future of the earth in 100 years. Well, most of us will be dead by then. So you'll never, that viewer would never see their feedback. So they might come up with a terrifying projection about the end of the world in 100 years, tell a whole lot of people about it, terrify everyone, but they never actually got the feedback to let them know if they were right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So, so that's tough. I mean, there are people doing a lot of viewing of, other situations that they could never possibly get feedback on. And that's more like, you know, if you want to see what's going on on the dark side of the moon, well, unless you can get yourself on Elon Musk's spaceship and go to the dark side, take a photo six months from now and say, aha, I was right. Or, oh, I was wrong. You know, you can't get that feedback. So you're really just asking about the future without the ability to get the result to the feedback. The third difficulty about seeing the future is you might be seeing the past instead. Yeah, <laughs> instead go ahead and share that. <laughs> well, there's a famous example. Um, I don't know if it was Joe McMonagall, one of the Stargate. One of, yeah. This was, I think this showed up in the movie Third Eye Spies where he was viewing a plot of land, trying to perceive what, the target was this area and he ended up drawing these huge water towers. And they said, well, that was a miss. There are no water towers there. So either he was trying to view something in the present or the future. Well, someone went back to look at the city records and they found out that 50 years ago or whatever amount of time there used to yes. be these massive water towers there. So it's not cut and dry. It's not like there's a line in time saying this way for the future, this way for the past. <laughs> that is true. It's really that is true. <laughs> I, I tend to think of time, all of time, as the, the theoretical model, the block universe. Think of like a block of jelly, this wobbly block of jelly. And space-time is a location within that block. So if we're talking about Denver, Colorado, 2021, that might be in this little part of this wobbling piece of jelly. Denver, Colorado in 2053 might be over here. Mm -hmm. 
Right. You're trying to perceive Denver in the future. Your mind better land over here instead of over here in this block of jelly. And you're, it's really like grasping through emptiness. It know? really is. And I think part of it too, um, just using a metaphor, I saw the uh, Matrix res- re- uh, Resurrection, the new Matrix wow. film recently. And anybody who's seen it or is going to see it, you're going to see the codes always running down in green, trickling down. And so if we're going to look at it from a kind of a digital point of view, which I don't see life that way, but let's say we, we're going to use that as a metaphor, mm-hmm. any type of insertion of code, just one, one and one zero changes the outcome of all this other stuff that's already in motion. And so, uh, I mean, it, it does beg the question. And my husband has often asked me that, why would you even attempt to view something off into the future? Um, when there, as by my own admission, there are so many moving parts. It only takes one person, if it involves other people, to have a bad day and miss a train, um, that to change the entire future of something that might have meant a great deal to you. So, is there? Is there? And I have my own reasons. Why would you view into the future, considering that it's a dynamic that's constantly in motion? stubbornness <laughs> curiosity <laughs> yeah. curiosity sometimes we are right uh but also you know so you, something you just said triggered something in me that there's this destiny quality to it and sometimes we might try and look into the future and we're right sometimes we might try and look into the future and we're wrong either way may have already been part of our destiny Yes. Did we have a lesson to learn by getting it right this time? Did we have a lesson to learn by getting it wrong that time? That's true, too. What you say brings up the notion that if we're going to play in these realms, um, if we're going to uh, expand our mind, expand that potential to be able to see past, present and future, perhaps more clearly, um, I think there has to be a kind of fluidness and non-attachment in the way in which a person lives in order to do that without feeling ultimately devastated, hurt, like a failure. So many people feel like a failure if they should view something wrong. But the fact is you're only seeing at any given time the potentials that exist in that moment until the next insertion of a thought, a feeling, or data comes in and changes it slightly or hugely. Yeah. And I think that's part of the learning curve. Maybe a person who's new to clairvoyance or remote viewing, they really want to get it right. Um, But over time, some people will soften. And there's that quality of humbleness, I think, that's developed in someone who practices any of these abilities over a long period of time. We become humble beings. And so it takes out that ego quality. I think if you're doing it right, it helps soften the ego. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think it does too, because you can't pretend to know. Um, at the same time, you can develop yourself so you're more prepared to know if you need to know. Mm-hmm. And that's an that's a kind of a Buddhist place to be, I was gonna say. Sure, yeah. In a way, it's kind of a Buddhist place to be. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah. I mean, even though I was criticizing my teachers, yeah. I'm not criticizing the religion itself. That so you're 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 right. I mean, there's one thing I appreciate about all these psychic abilities is there is that spiritual lesson to them too, that they are teaching us 
they're helping us build our character. They're helping us be better people on some level. I mean, some people can become complete egomaniacs through it, but I think for most of us, we're really learning some lessons and learning, getting to know ourselves better. More than that too, I think the most important psychic perceptions come to us spontaneously when we're not even trying because they need to come through for some reason. Yes. The really important ones, we never planned for it. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. That's my personal experience as well, where something is just called for in that moment. So if you have work to develop yourself and be open and without attachment, you have the ability to have some very useful things come through at the moment it's needed. And I think another thing too is rather than trying to figure out, you know, am I going to find love? Am I, is my book going to sell next year and all that is looking into the subtle fields of each other, even being able to have, develop greater compassion by having the ability to kind of dial in a little more deeply than what's presenting itself to the multi-dimensional multi nature of each of us, I think is incredibly valuable. Absolutely. And, and the spirit that we do it in is, is important too. You talked about earlier looking into the future. It's really probabilistic. Somebody could miss the train and suddenly everything changes. So let's take, for an example, you're thinking about someone you know who's ill and you're wondering how they're doing. If you try and perceive their deeper nature with love, yes, to change the probability of their outcome because of the power of love versus just trying to perceive them to as a psychic exercise. Doing everything with love can have immense impact and change the future. Absolutely. And once I think you've started dabbling and opening up and, you know, making the mind stronger and, and a better performer, and I say the mind, I mean the greater mind, not the brain, um, then it's usually a very short hop before people start spilling over into the area of healing and even remote healing. It's just kind of natural. And I assume that's where you go as well. I've had that experience. Um, I, I was a massage therapist for a bunch of years before I got arthritis a few years ago. And then that evolved into doing some energy healing. And that was really interesting. And what's really interesting about that is it worked when the person really needed it. Sometimes people would come just out of curiosity and nothing would really happen then. Yeah. It wasn't needed. So I think Non-physical consciousness is still an aspect of nature and nature knows how to fill the gap and knows how to heal and grow. So if the healing is necessary, the healing will happen. I didn't even have to do anything, frankly, when I did my healing sessions, I was just sort of a witness to letting the greater reality do the work it needed to do. And I was just there looking. Yes. That's how it seemed to me. Yeah. And it seems like there's an efficiency. There's a beauty and a natural order and a lack of chaos to that. Like you said, if someone's just randomly coming in to see, check something out and see what it's like, there is, there's no real energy around it. There is no urgency. But if someone comes in who needs what you have to offer, boom, a whole universe will come in to support both of you in that process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something very beautiful that we don't have control over. Mm -hmm. That's true. There's a hierarchy of needs that are natural. There's so many things happening at the same time. But imagine if we actually believed we had that much control 
That'd be a big problem. <laughs> That'd be a big problem. <laughs> well, I love what you had to say because really what it's it's telling me is that yes, you you consider yourself to be a person with an average level of these kind of net what some would call natural abilities. You'd say, no, they're not all that natural, but I know how to practice. I know how to I know how to work until I can do it. And anybody can if they really want to choose that. But you then further story, further the story by saying, it's all fun. It's been wonderful. I've learned some things. I've helped some people. But I'm going back more and more into the human aspect and learning those lessons in life. And it also teaches humility at the same time to know what we can't ever know and what's not going to be shown us. Because these abilities to be able to connect in, like with higher guidance, for example, oftentimes you can feel made a fool of when what's really happening is it's giving you just the next thing for the next moment. It's not giving you the big enchilada at the end of the story. It's just helping you find your way to the next step. Can you talk about that a bit? And when you're teaching people where that comes in? Oh yeah. Well, no one should ever feel bad for getting it wrong. You know, I think that overall the universe is going to give you what you need more than what you want in the moment, especially with practicing psychic abilities. So when I teach people in the classroom, which hasn't happened in a while now because of what's going on in the world, that when I teach them, I can usually spot the ones who will have the hardest time. They're usually the smartest people in the room. They have advanced degrees. They might be engineers or physicists. And they're just overthinking it. They're trying to figure out how it works while they're doing right. it. And that's a totally different state of mind. Yeah. And you need to be in a more soft or more open and feminine state of mind for some of these abilities instead of trying to do the quantum physics in your head at the same time. So I need to encourage those students to just relax, let it go. They can think in that way afterwards. After they succeed, they can try and figure out the quantum physics about it or whatever they they think about. Other people, they're just there. They're not even trying, but they're curious and they're open-hearted and it works for them instantly. And that's wonderful. Then there's everyone in between who they have to work out a, a little bit more, but then it's just a lesson in, in patience and largely in trusting yourself so many times People do their remote viewing transcript and I show them the picture or the video and they say, oh, I had this whole thing in my head, but I thought I was wrong. So I didn't write it down. Yes. That, <laughs> I know that happens a lot. Didn't I, I said, didn't I tell you to write everything down? Well, right. I, I thought it. I thought that didn't count. I'm like, that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I want to say, Sean, um, I'm going to pick up this conversation with you in another couple months time over at Gaia. And we're going to get into some of the stuff in your book, which is Renegade Mystic, that particular book talking about how this even spills over into other domains, other dimensions, and entities from other places because you've had your own personal experiences. So I wanted everyone to have a chance to get to know you and what makes you do what you do. And thank you for sharing that, these personal experiences of yours. And then I'll look forward to picking up the conversation on this other stuff um, in a couple months time. Well, thank you so much. It's been really great talking to you and you let me open up to some of these topics in a beautiful way. So I really appreciate it. 
Thank you. So meanwhile, I'm going to, I have not read Renegade Mystic yet, but I'm going to before that interview. I studied other things for this interview. By the way, people can go to you online and watch you do, using some telekinesis too, using the mind to bend. You can see you, you, can see you bending uh, some, it looks like aluminum foil in a container. So you can start seeing how the mind can be developed in these other ways as well. So anyway, what is the best URL for people to find you at? mindpossible.com. Good, mindpossible.com. And I looked you up on YouTube too. So until we speak again in a couple months, thank you so much for sharing your story and the gentleness of the arc of where this has value, where it truly has value and where we shouldn't put our value in it. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Sean. Welcome. Okay, everybody, until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com. And be sure if you're a Gaia member, be sure to keep a peek out for probably be out late summer or early fall with Sean on Gaia as well. Until next time, again, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.